Baxter Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. Today's episode is a little bit different. You're hearing my voice first. This is Josh, and I'm here with Baxter. I'm actually going to be interviewing Baxter personally, uh, just on what his interests are, who he is as a person, and the goal is to get you guys to know who is this person behind the name, uh, Baxter Bowman. So yeah, how's your day going, Baxter? Uh, It's going pretty good. It's been a relaxing weekend. Nice. And I've got a lot of questions prepped for you. I'm someone who always has like thousands and thousands of questions. So I'm like actually really excited about this one. Yeah, Um, I can can vouch for that. Josh is always asking questions, (laughs) which in a good way. It's a great thing. Just trying to uh, steal everyone's knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, it feels a little weird to be interviewed today. So the the deal we struck is he'll interview me and I'll interview him at some other time. So it'll come back for you here in a bit, Josh. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds good. Um, my first question before we get into the hunting and whatnot, I actually wanted to ask you if you could tell us the story of how you won a national championship in mountain biking. That sounds, uh, sounds a lot more legit than it is. Um, (laughs) you know, I think, uh, one of the things guys will pick up on this is like, I'm very into the sports I'm into and the things I love to do. Uh, Mm. and I've had a, like the succession of different sports I've loved since I was a kid fly fishing and outdoor what I call like pursuing animals has always been on the top of the list. But, uh, in high school, I got into mountain biking or I think it's kind of middle school, high school time frame. I, um, I think I had a bike stolen. You know, I got my first mountain bike with disc brakes. Like, well, this is the coolest thing ever and got it stolen. And, uh, when I did get it stolen, I, I was in a period where I was biking up to this lake behind my house in the Bay area here and fishing for bass, you know, with a spinning rod. Mm-hmm. Uh, just anything fishing, just hundred percent about it. You know, fly fishing was the main thing, but I'd take whatever I could get. And so my mom would drop me off there. I'd bike up and then I'd come downhill and I just loved the downhill. Like I just talk in like 40, 50 miles an hour and like, just absolutely loved that feeling. Uh, and just kind of got into it from there. And so the bike that I had got stolen, picked up a full suspension bike from an uncle that worked at a bike company, uh, started racing, met a, uh, my best buddy, uh, Brett, one of my best uh, butt of all time. I don't have a brother, but he's basically my brother mm-hmm. uh, through mountain biking. And it kind of just took off from there. Was probably biked three to five hours a day for like five, six years. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, what you're talking about was uh, I won a national championship in Cat 2. Uh, I forget what year that was. I think it was like end of high school, something like that. Then the next year got second in the nation at the same event and cat one, uh, which is the expert semi-pro level. And, uh, was sponsored by Maxis, Fox shocks, all that stuff. But, uh, really just loved mountain biking. Like loved the feeling of ra- racing bikes going fast. Uh, I think I've done a lot of crazy things on a bike and yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, and also, uh, Baxter, I know you're like a very humble person, so it might be uncomfortable for yeah, you so to like, <laughs> and to like <laughs> brag about your accomplishments, but, uh, that's what this episode is all about. So, uh, get yeah. ready for a fun hour here. <laughs> yeah. A little, I, mean, I guess a little more context on it. Guys are like, what's mountain biking? The, the side of it that I, that I specialize in was the downhill or the dual slalom. So it's the stuff like downhill skiing. It's the high speed timed competitive event and the, the one i won was actually the dual slalom which was a one guy versus another on two parallel courses oh wow um so i loved like the adrenaline side of it like the, mm-hmm. the crazy like the 
I think the all-time biggest jump I hit on a mountain bike was like 52, 53 feet, something like that. Um, and, you know, ridden stuff on a bike that I couldn't climb up without like, rock climbing gear. So I've done a lot of like pretty, pretty crazy things on a bike, but just like absolutely loved it, man. That sport, like, I'm going to be moving here somewhat soon. We probably shouldn't talk about that yet, but one of the most exciting things to me is the ability to get back on a bike because I kind of stopped doing that once I had a professional career because had one or two really bad wrecks and realized you can't go to client sites with blood seeping, seeping through your sleeves and your shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a bad look. Not yep. a good first impression. No, it doesn't work. Yeah. And I know you're into a bunch of outdoor activities. Um, so I'd love to touch on a couple of them and see if any of them inform the other, but I know you, you mentioned skiing is something you're really into. And I guess that's similar to mountain biking. You're like basically falling off or sliding off a mountain. And I know surfing you're into as well. Mm -hmm. uh fishing spear fishing how do you balance all these different outdoor activities uh that's a really good question yeah and I, i'd say you know if you're in order that list it'd be fly fishing number one far and away which i think we can talk about in a bit but i think there's so many similarities between the type of fly fishing i do and hunting right you're pursuing something uh, and then you know surfing is a big one for me i, I think you know, folks have a different version of balance and I always have this point of view that if you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like hard work. Mm -hmm. Like you're just super fired up about it. You know, everything in life, 50, 60% of it is going to be drudgery at some point. But for me, like I'll give you an example. When I was working at a consulting firm, like the really intense deal for the first three years of my career, 60 to hundred hour weeks, um, I'd have a truck. I owned a truck with a camper shell here in San Francisco, which might've been the only one in San Francisco at that time. <laughs> but I would put, you know, all three of my surfboards, my wetsuit. Uh, I'd put all my fly fishing gear. I'd put uh, everything I needed to mountain bike, all of it in the camper shell. And I always, every time I did an activity, you know, if I got back at two in the morning, I'd take it upstairs, I'd clean it, I'd lube it, I'd put it back in its case, I'd get it ready to go and I'd put it right back in the car. Mm -hmm. um, so anytime I wanted to go, I'd get off work at you know, 1am on a Friday night or something. And I'd go get in the truck and drive out to where I wanted to go, get there at like two or three in the morning and fall asleep and wake up the next day and go at it. Um, and I didn't, yeah, that sounds, that's like one of the extreme examples. That wasn't every weekend. Nobody can sustain that. But what I'm trying to say is like, like I didn't feel like I needed a break between work and the stuff I did. I love it. So I mm -hmm. go straight from work to do it, you know, and that was, that was it. Life is selfish, right? It's your early twenties and all you're doing is like hanging with friends, working and doing the things you love. Like that's yeah. it. Yeah. Working hard, playing hard. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. It's, but it also shows like you're one of those guys where I look at your lifestyle and I'm like, there's no way this guy also has 24 hours in a day. Like, like you managed to make it work so efficiently somehow and like get everything in. Um, it's, it's very impressive. Thanks. Um, so you'd say, besides hunting fly fishing would be first surfing second where would like skiing and mountain biking and spear fishing fall on that list for you you know i think you go through waves of this stuff you know there's different points in life where i was super excited about it um and you know like fly fishing has always been number one for me probably mm -hmm. like, i think flight hunting is relatively new and that's if you had to make me choose between bow hunting upland bird hunting or fly fishing i'd be really confused uh, i'd have a hard time but yeah, I think each of these things are amazing. And what's been really cool about the lifestyle here living in California is I kind of have seasons of each of them. And so going into the fall, you know, obviously August timeframe 
you know, I'm backpacking, I'm doing other stuff. Then it goes into elk season. Then I've got bird season. And during that surfing gets great, you mm-hmm. know, during the winter and skiing gets really good during that time frame too. So I'm doing those two sports and then steelhead season for fly fishing kicks off in the spring. Right. And then I'm doing spring skiing and then it transition and transitions into fly fishing and then it all repeats. Right. So there's different times of year. Like I, I'm always thinking about elk hunting. I'm always thinking about the things I love, but I'll be doing the sports that fit best for those conditions. Right. Got it. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of it's seasonal and you basically have a calendar that like naturally oscillates. And what's nice about that is it seems like you can really like push on one of them during one mm-hmm. part of the year and not worry about burning out. Cause you've got so many other outdoor activities that you enjoy. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you were, you're talking about how do you fit stuff into 24 hours in a day? And I think, uh, my secret to that is not multitasking at all. Oh yeah. You suck at multitasking. <laughs> I'm horrible at multitasking. I go a hundred percent on one thing. Mm-hmm. And I think if you are capable or excited or passionate about going a hundred percent on one thing, you'll always do well. And so I've tried to set up everything I do in life and other stuff, especially with relationships and people I care about, about just like structuring times that I'm not doing anything else. I'm a hundred percent involved and dedicated. So I think with, with those sports, like all these things, they're detail-oriented sports, right? Like the little things are the things that can make or break you. And so if you're 100% in, you're, you're gathering all those little details versus if you're just partly in, it might take you a year to pick up on something you might see within a day. Right. Makes sense. Definitely makes sense. And I can totally attest to the multitasking. Like when, so Baxter and I used to work together and uh, we used to sit next to each other at desks and like sometimes you'd be working on something at the computer and then I'd ask you something and it, it would, it would, it was your like, expression off. on your face would look like, like someone came into your room while you're sleeping, just like shine the flashlight in your face. Like, yeah. what, wait, like what, what, what yeah. what's going on? Like, <laughs> I'm pretty famous for that. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty bad at detaching from things sometimes, but I mean, that is, that's who I am and I know it. So it's, that's how the structure stuff, but I think yeah. it's a strength though. Cause like, um, there's a great book called the one thing by Gary Keller. It's like a productivity book. And mm-hmm. one of the chapters is one of the sections of the book is like productivity lies. And one of the lies is that multitasking is a lie. Like people think you're being productive, but you're having to switch task and reorient to a new set of rules mm-hmm. whenever you go to some new behavior and you lose a lot of efficiency by switching all the time. Yeah. No, that's smart guy. I have to read the book, but yeah. And I mean, I think like you're getting back to your question about the different activities and the outdoor stuff. Like there's a lot of them that I can't do here and you can't live in any one location. You can do all six of those things Mm -hmm. easily. Right. And so for me, it was never really that difficult because there's generally not much overlap. And like, I, you know, if I want to go spearfishing in the Bahamas, that's a trip. Right. Right. And by the way, that's where my mom was born and raised. So the guys are like, why are you going all the way to the Bahamas? Uh, but I think with each of those sports, it's like, I'm either doing them or I'm thinking about them. <laughs> so, uh, it's pretty easy to, to trade them off. Right. Yeah, totally. And as passionate and like engaged and driven you are in your hobbies and all these outdoor activities, I know you are equally engaged and driven in your career. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised to hear that you took a year off at one point. Uh, and I'd love to jump in and uh, go back in time for that one year sabbatical. Like during that one year, did you just pack it full of these outdoor activities or w- what were some things you were up to? Yeah, well, it's a good transition because you're t- speaking of thinking of this stuff 24 um, seven. 
uh, they back it up. I guess give guys context. Like I went to a top 10 university or whatever you want to call it and you busted, but it wasn't a, wasn't an easy, easy deal. Like I think five or 10% of kids flunk out of that school every year. And, um, so I ground hard from like, you know, through high school into college and then out the backside into the career and like was super passionate and super excited about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on to some degree, like it's not, that doesn't change, but that like working that hard, that 60 to 80 hours a week consistently is like, there's not much room for everything else. Right. And we talked about how I can kind of fit stuff around it and was super passionate about that. And I, I think it is a misnomer that's kind of one of the most difficult things I get with the stuff I'm doing is guys are like, you live in San Francisco, which by the way, we'll be changing soon, but you live in San Francisco, you're in tech. How in the heck are you an outdoors person that can do this? And I I think you can't, you can't quantify like the amount of time and effort you're putting in because people just don't believe you. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the amount of the stuff I'm putting on the side. That being said, the entire first seven years of my career, you know, all I'm thinking about are all these things I would love to do if I had more than two days on the weekend or a week of vacation time. Yeah. And so I've just been dreaming about all this stuff, right? And I worked really, really hard at the consulting firm, you know, got everything I wanted out of that and then went and helped found a business with uh, some folks. I was first employee at the startup I was at and we grew it to like 100 or I think it was 60 or 80 people by the time I left. And it was in a good spot. And after three and a half years, I said, hey, this is I'm burned out, man. Like I'm tired. Yeah. Um, I know what I want to do in my career and I want to make a jump just to try something new. And, mm-hmm. you know, in Silicon Valley, it's typically a year between year to two years between jobs. People move really quick. And after three and a half years, I said, Hey, this is it. So back to your original question, I'm doing a lot of these adding context, but Hey, the, you know, when I came to that moment, my mom was born and raised in the Bahamas and that always had been like a huge part of my heritage and something I loved. We can talk about the spearfishing bit doing that since I was a tiny little kid. And one of the like rites of passage that a lot of the guys in my greater family have done is to sail a real a sailboat down from where they lived in North Carolina to the Bahamas and sail around. And that sounds really ritzy and bougie, but trust me, these things are like little buckets. <laughs> it's just not a nice sailboat. So my uncle had one that was like 20 something years old and was trying to convince me to do it because he needed to, uh, to sell the thing. And so he called me up right about the time I knew I was leaving and said, Hey, listen, like if you want to do this, it's now or never I'm selling this thing. And, uh, I think he said something to me, which hit me really hard. And I'm so glad I listened to him, but he said, Hey, it's now or when you're 65. Wow. You know, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but, um, you, you mentioned a a point I want to expand on a bit is, uh, uh, you had a lot of relatives who had done this prior, like, yeah, one or two, two guys, three guys have done it. Um, he, you know, he's a sailor. He loves this stuff, right? Um, he was, he was just all about it. And I'd actually, the boat I ended up taking, I had sailed with him to the Bahamas once before. Okay. And like a, a, a crazy round the clock, one week trip, two week trip kind of thing mm-hmm. in college when I didn't know that much. And then one of my other cousins had sailed it down alone. Um, Wow. As well, so we you know, there, there's that precedent, but I really didn't know any of this stuff. But when he hit, you know, he said that to me, it kind of clicked, right? He's like, "You're gonna get married, you're gonna have kids, you're gonna get responsibility, and you don't have the ability to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's just inevitable." And he's like, "It's you've got a perfect transition in career. You know, you're gonna leave this place, 
uh, it's time to time to do it. And it was took a while for me to get over that because I'm a type A guy. I'm pretty driven, and I was a little concerned with career. Right? Like, are people going to look at this and go, like, why did you stop for a year? Did you burn out? Do you have mental illness? Like, what's going on here? Um, but one of the fortunate things about working in tech, and people always laugh when I say this, but I think it's one of the best careers for an outdoorsman, is that it's really flexible and people are much more accepting about that kind of thing. Like it's pretty normal in Silicon Valley for people to like take a year off. Right. Yeah. And so I finally got around to the point where I mentally convinced myself, Hey, this is something I want to do. And I had to finish that thought from earlier. All I'd been thinking about for seven years was all the things I wanted to do for, uh, <laughs> when I had the time. And so I had like 20 things I wanted to do stacked up. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let's do this. So one of them was, was sailing from, was it Florida to Bahamas solo? It was uh, South Carolina, the Bahamas solo. Yeah. And so South Carolina. Yeah. And that was the, that was the real reason I took the year off and it was supposed to only be six months off, but there's a lot okay. of things that changed, changed mid deal. First was that the, I'm trying to remember the name of the hurricane now, but the hurricane and this also by the way is the year that i started elk hunting right which mm-hmm. is one of the greatest gifts so i can look back on this time and be like this is one of the most foundational years of my life because i did things that like dramatically have changed who i am but the portion where i went sailing a hurricane came and just pretty much destroyed the boat it was Whoa. already in bad shape but it was just torn up and so there was a complete rebuild that needed to be done so I actually went, it was really fortunate. I went and spent a month and a half repairing it with the boatyard. Mm-hmm. Just every day working on it all day long in South Carolina, which is pretty cool. Some ups and downs there living in the bayou. But it was really fortunate because that boat tried to kill me like 10 times. I think, 10, I think it was nine or 10 times complete electrical failure, complete outage of the entire thing, dead in the water other than sails. In the so, middle of your trip? Oh yeah, no, like middle of the Whoa. crossings, middle of reefs cuts you name it and uh knowing how to repair that boat ended up being either a trip saver or a lifesaver so it was kind of a cool cool thing to have that month to month and a half just to learn you know how to bleed a diesel engine how to fix electrical wiring how to you know work through the uh the rigging of the sailboat that is crazy you've brushed by that like nine or ten times you almost died basically <laughs> but yeah like, how scary were those moments i don't think i've ever had a moment that I was that afraid of like my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think the thing that really concerned me, you know, probably if you, in the moment, everything feels like you're going to die, but probably six out of those nine moments, I'm not going to die. Like the boat's going to go down and I'll be wet and I'm going to have to call the coast guard. But it was the thought of losing that boat. Mm. And again, it wasn't a super nice boat. It was old. It's beat up. It's probably worth like 15 grand. If that, which for a sailboat is like <laughs> nothing. Right. But mm-hmm. we're not, like I said, this isn't some ritzy thing. Uh, but it was thinking about losing it and having to go back to my uncle and be like, dude, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sank it. So I think that was the real fear there for me, but life-threatening situations. Um, uh, I've definitely been in a few between the mountain biking, spearfishing here in California, big wave surfing, a lot of these things. Like, I guess I don't really, I guess in the moment I have a, like an ability to be stay calm, mm-hmm. which is what everyone said that's been with me in those kinds of things. Like I don't, I don't freak out. I guess a lot of that is underpinned by um, faith. And I haven't talked about that and I probably don't talk about it too much just because I don't ever want to like preach at people, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think I'm in control. 
in a lot of these situations, I think if something's going to happen, it's in control of someone greater than me. So I'm never that worried because that's, uh, I'm like, Hey, if this is it, this is it. Wow. Like it's all part of the plan. Yeah. Dang. Interesting. Um, so since you were young, did you believe that kind of everything that happens is the, what's supposed to be happening to you? Like, did you always think that way? No, (laughs) no, I think, uh, and I mean, just to clarify, like guys are like, what does he believe? What's he like? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I believe in foundation, you know, foundational salvation. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. Cause I know guys aren't listening to a podcast to get that whole deal. But I, I do think that that's something I learned over time. And it's something I've learned in those experiences. I've always said the closest I've been to God has been when I'm outside and outdoors. Oh, wow. So I think that's where a lot of it came from. And yeah, just learning that, uh, that trust. Cause you don't, I think one of the coolest things about a lot of the places I've been, the ocean, the mountains, the other stuff, is you realize just how utterly small and out of control you are. Mm. And that you, you know, humans are just, we have a lot of pride and yet we're so powerless. And uh, it would be really, really easy for you to get wiped off the face of the earth on a snap of a finger, right? Yeah, that's Even true. just driving a car, man. I think the most dangerous thing I've ever done is driven a car. <laughs> like, it's just so scary. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I was, I, I was going to ask you actually, what is it about nature that you enjoy so much and would that be the answer or is there, is there more there as well? Yeah, I think that's a big part of the answer. You know, it's, for me, it's a really spiritual, powerful moment. I think there's a few other things. One, when you're alone, you can't hide a lot of who you are, mm-hmm. what's going on from the world you know it's pretty easy to do that with the speed and distraction and the other stuff of everyday life but when you're out there it's just you um and that's a really scary thing i think in a lot of ways you know you have to look at yourself in a way that you're not comfortable with mm-hmm. but i think it's a really productive thing in a lot of ways and i've always been an introvert so i don't i really don't mind time alone it's like it's time for me to truly you talked about it right i look like i'm you woke me up when you break into my thought process. Sometimes like I get time to just truly dive deep and think hard about stuff. Um, so I think that's it. And yeah. then it's, that's definitely a big, big component of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to actually, I haven't heard my notes. Like the next topic I want to talk about was solitude. Cause I think we have that in common. I, I really enjoy solitude as well, even though I'm, I'm um, definitely more extroverted than you are, oh, yeah. but for some <laughs> reason I, I seek out solitude as well. It's just, it's like the closest thing to peace that I experience. And I'm curious, like for you, like is solitude, a, how big is of a piece of like all these outdoor stuff is solitude? Cause it, it looks like a lot of the things you get into mountain biking, surfing, skiing, spearfishing, there are things you do on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if someone's with you, they're not, you know, it's not like a team sport or team group activity. Uh, totally. How does solitude, like, how's that a factor in all of this? And, and what do you like about it? Without a doubt, it's a big one. You know, and I, I think, I mean, some of my closest friends and best buddies of all time are like their brothers in arms, right? They're guys that are out there with you doing that. So it's not that you have to be alone all the time, but like you said, it's, uh, it, there are things where you are alone. You get the ability to think, you get the ability to test yourself, to learn about yourself, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think it's huge. That's, that's what I want to get. You know, you've picked apart a little bit of it, but I live a pretty intense lifestyle on the side and that's not not going to get any easier here with the kid coming and all the other stuff so for me to the time i do get to go do what i want to do i want to be alone like i want to have that moment and 
I think that's another reason getting back to what you said earlier, like I don't have problems burning out or how do you fit it all in? It's because the moments that I do have for this stuff, they're like my, they are my rest time. They're my recovery time. They're my, like, I feel like I'm in the zone. I'm flowing, right? It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's a great, uh, it's a great piece of rest. Yeah. Does it feel therapeutic when you're out there alone, uh, pursuing your endeavors? Without a doubt. Yeah. No, no questions. Right. And I think you also, with a lot of the gear reviews and stuff we've talked about, like there's a reason I overthink a lot of stuff now, right? It's because I really don't want to think about it out there. I think when gear is great and other things are wonderful, like you get into a flow state because you don't really have to think about it. Yeah. Right? Like I don't, when I'm out elk hunting, I've got a Ziploc with all my food for the day and everything else is tuned and perfect. So all I'm doing is just like thinking about where I'm walking next and what I'm doing and eating. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's a pretty easy state to get into to like truly, uh, you, like you're there's always this soft flow right you, your mind is just occupied enough that you feel like you're doing something mm -hmm. but it's so intuitive and easy to you that you're not like your mind can also just have deeper thoughts at the same time yeah i really like the solitude um i also like long walks alone i feel like i get more creative um long walks on the beach you are a single guy <laughs> and uh yeah when, when i'm backpacking solo i feel like things come up that i just haven't thought about in a long time that whether it's something i'm wrestling with or some insecurity mm -hmm. or something i'm afraid of and it's just good to like think through those things and like process those emotions that mm -hmm. just don't come up with daily distractions yeah and uh to wax like really really poetic or whatever for a moment like i think the things i like to do they're all pursuit mm. right so they're things where you're going after a goal whether it's finding a great wave or catching a big trout or getting an elk or uh you know spearfishing getting the right fish or you know, there there's different ways to approach each of those sports that's one of my things with hunting is there's i think there's literally 20 different sports within hunting mm -hmm. or fly fishing because guys all approach it a different way but for me it's it's pursuing something right? It's the, the act and the art of going after something, understanding it, knowing about it, you know, understanding the ways you would go get it and then getting it. So it's not the, the actual getting itself that's fun for me. It's the process of doing that. And I think that's true of the sports and I think that's true of life. And so when I'm out there pursuing something, it, it frees my mind to like think about what else I'm pursuing in life. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I know you do a lot of solitude, but then, um, during that one, your sabbatical, you also got married, right? Yeah. Well, uh, got met the met Margaret during that met year, Margaret. got Margaret okay. married like a year or two after that, but gotcha. Okay. And then she came into the picture. So I wanted to ask, like, there's not a lot of people out there who go hunting with their wife and, uh, <laughs> yeah. What, what is that like? Like, what are some of the, the joys in that? What are some of the challenges, uh, the fun moments, the funny moments? Yeah. Well, that was a, uh, that was a really cool process. And it's this year actually is kind of full circle because this will be the first time I solo hunted since the first year I went elk hunting, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and actually I've solo hunted, hunted a bunch since then. It's just not always been elk hunting. But we met, so for people that don't know her, she's from Wyoming actually originally, which is pretty crazy to meet her in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't, if you don't believe in the answers to prayer, that's got to be one. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember talking to my buddy at my wedding speech. He gave me, he gave a speech about a conversation we had where I was like, I just got to find someone. And he looked at me and he's like, you're in product management, product marketing. He's like, your product is in the wrong market. <laughs> 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 and he was just like, yeah, we got to like, 
let's fly you to Dallas. Let's like move you to Colorado. Let's like, he's like, we got to <laughs> think of something to get you out, find someone with the things you care about. Um, mm-hmm. So I actually met her before I left on my time off, believe it or not. It was like a month before I had a, a party for some friends and another friend brought her over uh, and I met her there and I was like, wow, she's pretty cute and she's pretty, pretty interesting. But I think when your mind's that engaged and doing something as crazy as doing your first solo elk hunt for a month and sailing a boat from South Carolina to the Bahamas in three weeks, you're not trying to add a relationship on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I was alone on the boat, speaking of time to think, I was, you know, I, I got I said, two or three months of alone time, right? And on the back mm-hmm. side of that, I sat down and said, hey, what are the things I want in someone? Like, what do I really care about in life? And who's the partner that I want to find? Like a very intentional way of doing it. Yeah. Very, you know, ex-consultant, put it all down in bullet points, right? <laughs> um, but when I listed it all out and like stepped back and sat down, I was like, okay, no holds barred. Do you know anyone like that, right? Like, have you met anyone like this? Are you any of your buddy's girlfriends like this? Like, let's see, like who, who and where is this person? And mm-hmm. I kind of had this moment of like, holy moly, like that girl I met really briefly had like, she's got most of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I didn't know, you don't know her, you don't know the, the depths but she has all of it and then some, but I didn't quite know it at the time. Um, but I just, then I had this moment of like almost panic. I was like, Oh man, <laughs> she's in, she's in man Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Right. She's a catch. Like I better, I better hurry up. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Long story short between trips when I had to come back and deal with a lot of life things like taxes and other stuff, I was like, I better go out to lunch with her. And mm-hmm. I, we did. And uh, that was kind of it from there on out. And we, we started dating from there. So that was crazy. We got married two years later, I think it was, but that fall was the, the question you're asking about, which is hunting. And when you're talking about hunting with someone in San Francisco, <laughs> it's uh, you push that over the table real slow. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. You, deal, you put it down on the napkin, you slide it over. Uh, so I didn't know how she felt about it. It was like, Hey, I do this thing, you know, I kind of like it's in San Francisco, the way you frame hunting, it's always about the meat, right? You start mm-hmm. with the meat because people here understand that organic, it's natural. It's, and she's like, Oh, you mean you hunt? Oh my gosh. I've always wanted to hunt. And then my dad never let me. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so she'd gotten her hunter safety at age 12, but uh, you know, it's kind of a man sport. And I don't, there's ups and downs to that. Like I understand it. There's 20 guys in a cabin bringing a, uh, uh, a girl would change the dynamic, but then there's also a sad part, which is, you know, she always really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I said, Hey, I'm going elk hunting this fall, would you want to go with me? Uh, and she was like, heck yeah, I want to go. <laughs> so wow. it was, uh, that was our first time. I kind of gave you all this history. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't need to know, but that was our first time hunting together. And, uh, we shot an elk the first morning. <laughs> Ridiculous. And that and was I your was second year hunting, right? Second year hunting. I was like, please, please do not think this is normal. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what's even better is that was in Colorado. We went to Idaho three weeks later and first day out, I shot another bull. <laughs> That's ridiculous. So she's forever ruined. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but uh, no, to answer your big question, which was like, how is that? And is there ups and downs to it? Yeah, it's a massive trade-off, right? I think guys all hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, you're the luckiest guy on earth. And I am. Like, I've got some pretty incredible things from it. But And I'd say this with her right in front of me, like there's huge trade-offs to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm super, super intense about my fitness, super intense about my dedication to the sport. And it's really cool to see that passion in her. And she's probably the first person 
person I ever truly coached for it, but she's going to hold me back. Right. In a lot of different ways. Like she's going to, she's going to have different standards of like personal comfort and hygiene. She's going to have different standards of how far she can shoot and what she can do and her fitness level. And so there's downsides there without a doubt. Right. But the upsides of like getting to share that with someone you truly care about and letting her see that side of it has been, been really cool. So it's been a, it's a trade-off, like no doubt. And it's kind of fun. We've come back to this great spot where I've said, Hey, like I, I want to hunt with you a lot, but I also got to be alone, right? Because that's who I am. And I think she's, I think the most incredible thing in someone that's a partner with you is their ability to recognize your passions and the things you love and support you in those, even if they don't understand them. And I'm really, really fortunate she does understand them. And she also does what's hardest for her, which is to like, let me leave her behind and go, go hunt solo and do stuff like that every now and then. Man, that's beautiful. Um, I don't know if she'd be willing, but we we should get her on the podcast one day. Oh yeah, no, she would yeah. be in a heartbeat. She's always. I mean, we're in eight hundred square feet here, so she's like, <laughs> you know, through two doors right there. So it'd be pretty easy. Yeah, she's like listening right now, like Baxter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's um, sleeping actually. <laughs> but yeah, that is that is very unique. And man, talk about a pursuit, right? Like everything you do yeah. is a pursuit. And you went on your trip, and you're like, oh man. Margaret might be the one. Yep. And then you went on the pursuit and oh. now you guys are having a kid. And, and don't, uh, you know, don't, don't skim over it. Like there's certainly a little bit of testing going on there. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you're, <laughs> so you say like the outdoors, right? And she's, she passed out with flying colors. Like she's been out, we've been out elk hunting and it's been 15 degrees in the morning and you got to get up and put your clothes on and she's, she's still out and still wants to do it. So there's no better test of whether someone truly likes the outdoors than a, September backpacking trip. That's for sure. Yeah. And now you've gotten the chance to go with her to Hawaii to hunt, right? Mm-hmm. DIY as well. Yep. Have you taken her to New Zealand or did you go there solo? I went there solo. Yeah. I've, you know, fly fishing was my passion before. I mean, it still is. It's just as much as hunting. I just don't talk about it because we're focused all on hunting now for the mm-hmm. time being. But uh, I've been to New Zealand three times, Argentina twice, British Columbia multiple times. Every, every fly fishable state in the, the U.S. multiple times. Like I've done a lot of travel for it. Yeah. So hunting is kind of a natural progression of that. But yeah, we've done, the last time I went to New Zealand, I did a three, four week hunting trip, three week hunting trip. And then uh, with her, I've been to Hawaii once to, to hunt axis deer, which is incredible. Such a cool opportunity. Yeah. So you've hunted in the U.S., you've hunted in Hawaii and New Zealand. And then in Argentina, you went fly fishing there or did you mm-hmm. hunt there as well? Uh, we did, we hunted there, but it was like a incidental thing with like, Hey, we've got shotguns. Do you want to just go out back? Um, and I was crazy about hunting. Like I really wanted to hunt at that point in time, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And yeah, we got some stuff, but I didn't feel like it was true hunting. Cause I wasn't, I was just showing up with a shotgun and shooting things. Someone else told me to. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so if you could sum up, like what is hunting Hawaii like versus hunting in New Zealand and all compared to like America, what, what, what are the differences and similarities? Oh man, we'll, we'll have to do a whole podcast on New Zealand, but, uh, it's fascinatingly different, fascinatingly different stuff there. Um, there's no predators. So big game animals are viewed as pests. They're like, you or I would <laughs> view a rat here is how they view all big game animals. And the government actually guns down hundreds of thousands of them from helicopters or pays for guys to go in with helicopters and go shoot them mm-hmm. each year. So it's a really different dynamic there versus the United States. There's no tags. There's no seasons. There's no nothing. 
Um, there's nothing there that can hurt you. You can run around through the forest naked at night and you're fine. Um, not, not saying you should, but they truly view hunting as like a meat gathering expedition. So like, I'll tell you a story about the buddy I went with was a guy there, the fly fishing guy, but he, we went together and I shot a stag after like five days. It's all public land. That's, I have this massive thing. I don't want to get started on now, but everyone that goes to New Zealand goes on a private land and shoots these monster stags that are being raised. And like, I could not be more opposed to that. Like that's not hunting. Um, mm. And you see that a lot in the media. A lot of big names go do that. And it's been really hard for me to watch, but this is all public land. Took us like three, four days. We shot a stag. Uh, and as I shot, I turned around and like grinned at him. I was like, yeah, we got it. Like after all that work. And he looked at me, he's like, what the bloody hell are you doing? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, keep shooting. I was like, what? He's like, shoot all of them. That's my winter <laughs> meat supply. Wow. So, and I like, he wanted me to shoot fawns. He wanted me to shoot females, things in the U.S. that you're like, this feels wrong and weird. And in our context, it is right. You, there's not the supply of animals, but there actually, if they don't trim down enough animals in the areas they hunt, they, the government comes in and poisons the entire Valley. Crazy. So they have to kind of be the game warden for the area and just knock down a bunch of animals so that stuff doesn't get out of hand and they mow over all the vegetation. So that's just one difference, but it's, it's really fascinatingly different place. And I couldn't be more of a proponent of doing that because it's also, you know, when it's winter here, it's summer there. So it's a great off season kind of opportunity for guys. Oh, that's so smart. Yeah. yeah. And then also the meat quality there is like known to be like pristine, right? Like you can fly it back to the U S it's uh, yeah, it's a sites country C I T E S. So there's no import problems with meat. It's very easy. Uh, so he, you know, he ended up taking most of the meat cause he wanted it for his family, but the stuff I wanted super easy to bring home to the U S which I think Crazy. for hunters is a, uh, is what you should be doing. I'd have a pretty hard problem if you were going there and shooting things and you're not eating it or at least giving it to someone who does. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And is there anything in common with New Zealand and the U S uh, I mean, hunting is hunting, right? It's pursuit. It's not, you think everyone has this idea of, oh, you drop over there and there's thousands of animals. It's easy. Uh, it's actually, it's hard, right? Like if an animal's pursued, like they've just learned to, they learn to get away from people. So I think that's what I love about New Zealand is it's a unique destination, but it's still hard hunting. And I mean, you can hunt things there, mountain, you know, tar, which is the only animal other than a lion that has a mane, right? And it's a mountain that's uh, a sheep or mountain goat, essentially, which in the U.S. to get that tag would take you 20 years versus there mm -hmm. you can walk up and go for it. Uh, Amazing. So there's a lot of similarities in the way you hunt, but uh, it's just so many vast differences. But that would take an hour and a half to go through. It's such a cool Yeah, we'll save it, save it for another podcast. And then how yeah. about Hawaii? Yeah, Hawaii, um, that's another one. I mean, a lot of guys are going to go, yeah, yeah, Hawaii must be nice. But from the West Coast, one of the benefits we've got here is that you can get flights for like $300 out there. It's pretty cheap. And mm -hmm. if you do it the right way, you can stay in a cheap place. And for a guy that loves surfing and bow hunting and spearfishing, that's a pretty fun week. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. And so that one, I don't want to talk as much about because if everyone knew how to do it, it would get crazy and crowded. Um, but I'll just put it this way. If you put in enough legwork and enough effort and research, it's pretty easy to find areas on several islands that allow you to hunt on public land or stuff you can pay very small fees to access, um, access to your goats, mouflon sheep, all that sort of stuff. And so that is just incredible, incredible hunting because access to your art 
everywhere. And they are, uh, they are probably the spookiest animal I've ever seen or even heard of. Like we, I shot at two axis deer that were at 60 yards. And in both situations, they were unaware I was there. But between the time the bow went off and the arrow got there, they'd moved at least two body lengths away from where the arrow was. That's crazy. They're unbelievably twitchy and difficult to hunt. And they're small, right? They're like large German shepherd size. They're, they're very small. And so it's tiny little things. So the challenge of bow hunting axis is incredible. I think spot and stock. It's really fun. Yeah. Why are they so twitchy there? They're just twitchy everywhere. It's just what they are. Oh, okay. uh, they're known for, they're, they're originally from India. They're called Chital. And they're, their natural predators are tigers. So they're very, very twitchy um, by nature because the thing that hunts them is super, super aggressive. Oh. So they're just incredible. And they taste phenomenal, unbelievable. Like I don't, I didn't think there's anything better than elk, but one of the coolest off season bow hunting opportunities for sure. And yeah. I mean, hey, 70, 80 degrees, you're in a single layer you don't even have to bring a jacket you're walking around looking you're looking down at like blue ocean while you're hunting in green surroundings like it's pretty cool <laughs> that's crazy you're hunting on like paradise it sounds yeah basically so yeah we wow. love that that's that's an easy one for us to go to nice and uh now i want to transition a little bit to uh bow hunting right this mm -hmm. obviously baxter bowman and all this is around bow hunting and you mentioned that you got into it during that one year sabbatical yeah i know you're already into all these different pursuits fishing and and upland game uh bir like bird hunting and whatnot yeah. and then what was it about elk like that appealed to you and how'd you first hear about it and, and get get started yeah, I think it's like all these sports, like all these things when you, when I first heard about it, it was like a slow incubation process. You know, I shot my first big game animal with a gun, backing up even further. We talked a bit about this in the first episode, but I lifelong fly fisherman. My granddad was kind of the one that was a hunter. My adopted granddad, we call him the guy that's acted like my granddad out here. Mm -hmm. um, and he always was like, hey, what you're doing with the fly rod is the same thing you're doing with a gun. It's just that you're playing for keeps, right? And I, here in California, there's definitely a stigma against hunting. I'd always loved it and wanted to do it, but the big game hunter is a bad word, right? And it just took me a while to get over that notion, right? Like I'd kind of mm -hmm. just absorbed that from living here. And so after a while, he got me into it with the rifle and I, I thought it was pretty cool. But when I was there, you know, the years I'd be up at the deer ranch with him, uh, he was uh, you, the guys there were always like, Oh, one of the most amazing things you've always got to do is go hunt elk. Like you, you're like this mountaineer, you know, fly fishing guy that loves to be up high and do these crazy things like go, Oh, you should, you would love elk hunting. And so I'd always, you know, after a year or two, I'm like, Oh, that's something I want to do. I just knew that like where they were and hearing how good they tasted. I was like, Ooh, that's something I got to try. Mm -hmm. But when I knew I had this year off coming for the other, the other stuff, I was like, hey, this is my chance, right? I've got time off and that's one of my big five things I want to do with this year. And so I started looking into it. I didn't make the call to go elk hunting or should I take the year off until June. <laughs> and so I decided to go elk hunting on like now, right? We're, we're recording this end of June. I know we're probably not to say that, <laughs> but like literally June. So a month yeah. and a half, two months before season. So uh, when I did that, you know, what I really wanted was to go during the rut. I just heard stories and them bugling and you don't have to worry about camping in snow and the tag availability was another thing that back then it was easier to get archery tags than rifle tags. You know, now mm -hmm. I'd say they're about even and pretty soon I bet it'll be the other way around. But all that pointed to like archery, right? And I, I think there's so much in common between archery and fly fishing. 
like it's a very skill heavy and gear heavy thing where you're you want to master the art as much as you want to like kill something right it's the process of learning and mastery and like that really appealed to me so i don't know if that's a cohesive answer but that's like all the things that kind of filtered into it and i was like oh man i really want to go try elk hunting uh, in the fall and i've been backpacking for 25 years we talked about that before yeah yeah i was like five years old so i'm like ooh, that that's an advantage in this type of hunting that's not an advantage i could really use in rifle season as much but in archery season that gives me an advantage okay yeah i'll go do that yeah totally and so you decided about a month and a half two months ish that you wanted to do it and then i remember you say you picked up a bow a month before yeah well i remember i ordered yeah i went down to the local i did what most guys do which is kind of what i rally against to some degree now but i went to the local bow shop and of course they only let me let me clarify there i love local bow shops definitely support them what i propose is guys should look at all options right because it's not about what's best quote unquote it's about what's best for you mm-hmm. but i kind of got sucked into the system and i went to the local bow shop they only had two you know matthews hoyt which are both great brands you would be happy with either of those bows but i didn't even order a bow until like july 5th or 10th i think something like that and so the bow didn't even get there until like i think it was the end of july or something like that wow so in that period of time i had to figure out all the stuff uh, so it was a pretty compressed timeline and I was still working. I worked till like mid August. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't like, you know, some guys are like, Oh, we had all that time off. No, no, it was full-time job and transitioning two teams I ran at the company. So <laughs> it, was, it was pretty chaotic time. That's crazy. And then as soon as you got the bow, I bet you were just shooting that thing like crazy every day. I just remember, I mean, it's where you're at now. This is why it fires me up to watch you do this stuff. But I remember just how like, well, bloodlust is the right term, but just how stoked you are to shoot that thing every single day yeah. of your existence. You're like, this is the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and we're one of the ironies of living in the Bay is you have some of the best archery facilities in the world, and they're available year round. And so I think that's part of what made me successful with elk hunting is all the time I'm practicing. I'm not sitting at a 20 yard range. I'm out at these you know 3D ranges that are you know, 10 to hundred yard shots up and downhill across lakes through trees. Uh, so I was out shooting at those things two, three times a week. Oh yeah. And that, that's about what I'm doing now. It's so fun. Yeah. Um, and then actually let's transition over to, to what we're doing here with the podcast and, you know, with your blog, like, um, I, I think you always kind of wanted to do something along the lines of this, right? Like you have so mm-hmm. much, you've done so much research, you study so much, you have so much to give back and share, but why this year? Yeah. And I'd, uh, uh, you know, had a bunch of guys be like, oh my gosh, like, what's your photography like? And where are you getting in? How are you doing this? And I'm like, yeah, it's because I've been saving up photos for five or 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always kind of been on my mind. Um, I, I was almost an English major in college. I loved the right, uh, which is funny because I also did like engineering and business, but I, I love, I'm a very left brain, right brain. I love writing. Like I love communicating and like sharing and teaching. And so I've always known that I wanted to do some sort of website or some sort of thing where I'm showing guys this stuff. And then also uh, in my spare time, like for fun, when I'm not out doing these activities, I'm like researching the gear, right? Like that's, I'm always a gear nut. We've talked about why in in the past ones. So like I knew there was kind of a desire to to put that out there and to talk about it just because it's my passion. It's what I love to do. So that, hey, it's really cool to combine the outdoors with all the stuff I'm already doing. this year, you know, I honestly don't know why it kind of ticked over. I think it was part really 
honestly meeting you know meeting you and teaching you through the process because when you teach someone you know the, the stages of teaching or learning right they say it's like researching or reading and then it's doing and then it's teaching right and so for yeah. me it was yeah never with this podcast want to make it seem like or the website or anything seem like i'm an expert like i'm just a guy that's been hunting elk for five years now and got lucky or this will be my fifth and got got lucky there's always a combination of luck and skill right or effort mm -hmm. i would say and you know, got three out of four. And so I don't ever want to make it seem like I'm an absolute expert, but I've definitely put like so much effort and passion into it. And so to start teaching you was like, oh man, this is kind of the moment to like start turning some of that back out towards, towards the world. And it's funny because elk hunting in theory is the thing I know least about of all the five or six things I do, mm -hmm. but uh, it's the thing I'm most fired up about and super excited about. So uh, I thought, Hey, this is a good time to start doing it. And it'd be a really cool way to teach Josh and kind of put it out there. So, yeah, I remember like there's so many whiteboarding sessions that we had, you know, during lunch at work or, or after hours or sometimes even during hours, but, uh, we go down on a tangent and then I remember just thinking in my head, like, wow, like if we just recorded the past hour in a video or an audio and just share it out there, like that'd be so valuable for people. Um, I never pitched you the idea of like, oh, let's start a podcast it, like during that time. Cause I was like, oh, Baxter wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like so much time commitment and all that. And yep. then you started up the blog and I, I know mm -hmm. you like writing a lot and let's get, go on the gear stuff a bit earlier. You mentioned you don't really believe in like the best overall certain gear items, mm -hmm. but it's really the best fit. Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, so so for guys that don't know, I work in product marketing, which is halfway between developing products and then halfway between the marketing teams. You're supposed to be a foot in each, each world. And I think the thing about marketing that always really pissed me off is when it gets people to buy things they don't need or don't fit, right? So I'm kind of like, maybe I'm atoning for sins or something, but I'm anti-marketing right now. <laughs> and I think, like I understand it, when you Google something or people go look for stuff, me too, you go, what's the best this, mm -hmm. right? And that gets back to the fundamental human condition of communication, right? For someone, like I can tell you what's the best, but that's based off of my individual situation, right? How strong I am, what my draw length is, what bow I'm shooting, what type of animal I'm hunting, where I'm hunting, when I'm hunting. Like there's mm -hmm. a thousand individual things that all wrap up in it. And what really, really upsets me is when folks go out and they're just like, this is the best and this works for everyone. Yeah. Um, and so with this stuff, that's part of like my mission. That's part of what I love to do is break it down and talk about brands and products and just say like, this one's really good for this exact situation and for what you're doing here. And that's also kind of why I have to go with this independent approach. Cause if I don't, like, I can't really say that. Like you can't, like, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with sponsorships. There's nothing wrong with partnerships. Like the guys, the most respected names in all of bow hunting have that stuff but they sure as heck can't I'll pick on Sitka cause I love Sitka gear and I have a ton of it. So they know I like them, but <laughs> like a guy that's sponsored by Sitka can't say, Hey, the apex pants is phenomenal and it is. And they can't turn around and look at their bino case and say, that's the best on the market. Right. Cause it's, it's not the Sitka, the Sitka bino one is just not that great. Like they've come out with a new rev of it, I think. But when you're sponsored by someone, you can't pick or choose and say like, these are the good things or these are the things that work for person X, right? You have to just say everything's great. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I ended up in this independent spot. Just because I'm so passionate about just saying like what's out there. And I think it's the biggest single, I'll finish it with this, but I think it's the biggest single hurdle to a lot of these sports is the, 
the total expense and the cost of this gear. And so if I can do two things, one, tell guys that they really don't need the most expensive and what's the minimum thing that'll work for them. Mm-hmm. And then two, make sure when they are spending money, it's exactly what they need. They don't have to rebuy and it's great and it's going to work well. Like that's, I feel really, really happy, like super excited. Um, and I haven't figured out how to make any money on that yet. So it's kind of a problem <laughs> because my wife's like, you're spending all this time doing this stuff and you make nothing for it. Um, so I don't know. We'll see if I can figure out how to do that, but that's just where my passion is. And that's what I'm most excited about. So I'll just keep doing that and figure out the other stuff later. Yeah. I keep telling Baxter like, cause obviously I'm buying a lot of new gear because I don't have it. I didn't have anything to start with. And then I got the bow and later on got all these things. And I was like, Baxter, if you set up your affiliate link a while ago, you could have just made a bunch of money off me. Cause I trust your opinion so much. Like you tell me what to get. And I, I basically buy it. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of new hunters out there who saying they, they read your blog. They look at, dang, this guy puts a bunch of research in and gives me options like, hey, if I don't have like best bang for your buck, 80% of guys, this will be a good fit for if yep. your situation. So yeah, I'll probably, I mean, that's <laughs> harp on you here publicly. We got to get those affiliate links up eventually. Um, and yeah, could you, could you describe to people the difference between being sponsored and being an affiliate? Yeah, well, yeah. And that's, I mean, you've seen me talk about this and think about it because it's the one model that kind of fits with the way I want to do stuff. Um, mm-hmm. All affiliate links, and this is, like I have an insider view to marketing from being a guy who's on the other side of this. Like we do affiliate stuff in my business. Mm-hmm. So the all an affiliate link is, is just when someone clicks on a link to a product from your website and then buys it, you get a commission of that sale. Yeah. And the reason companies can do that is that they already pay for CAC or customer acquisition costs, uh, which is like expensive, right? So in a software startup, you might spend 500 to $1,000 in marketing spend, you know, in ads and videos and all this stuff just to bring someone in. Mm-hmm. So an affiliate basically saying this product's great, saves them all that money. And so they're like, we'll just give some of that money to you. Yeah. Um, and so the nice thing about that is that there's no, there's no sponsorship relationship, right? Like it's just free for all. Anything that has an affiliate link, you can go send guys to. So that means I'm inherently unbiased, right? I can say, Hey man, this first light thing is great. And that Kuyu thing is great. And that Sitka thing is great. And like, I'll make money from any of those things that I refer you to. And that way I can truly say, I'm, I don't care between this. Right. Yeah. And I think the fundamentally most powerful thing about that is trust. Yeah. So, yeah. Cause they know that you've done all the research and you're not like sponsored and paid by one company to only have to preach that thing. Uh, it, it would be, I guess an analogy would be like, if you asked a vegan, like, what should I eat? They'll be like plants. You should eat plants. Or if you had a yeah. butcher and maybe a butcher is a better example, what should I eat? The butcher would be like meat. Yeah. But then if you ask a dietitian who's like a nutritional expert, they'll tell you like, Hey, it depends on your situation. Here are the things I recommend. Yeah. And that, that is everything to me. And like it, selfishly, that means I get to test and try a lot of the other products too, which is what I really love. Like I like to yeah. try and experiment and poke holes in products and be like, this is what it could be better. I mean, that's what I do in my day job. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But like you said, it's the trust aspect of it where when I tell someone something, they're not like, like, let's back it up and pick it apart. Like we already talked about guys that are sponsored. Right. But magazines, if you ever read a bow hunting magazine, you notice all these, it's almost always glowing reviews. You'll never see a single review that says this thing sucks. Never, yeah. ever. <laughs> you might, the worst you'll find is they're like, ah, oh, well, it's good, but only in this way. Mm-hmm. And that's because every every single article, look at what they're talking about and then go find somewhere in the magazine, there'll be an ad for that mm-hmm. thing. 
So yeah. the company that's having them review it is paying for an ad. That's the only way to get something reviewed in a bow hunting magazine is to pay for an ad. Mm. Right. So same with sponsored folks. They're going to push the brands they're sponsored by. Magazines are only going to push the things they're doing. Forums. Guys are like, no, forums are unbiased. No, absolutely not. Right. Forums are all sponsored by certain companies. I ran into this when I was doing this thing. You can't post in a forum or even mention what you're doing or put it in your signature unless you're a sponsor of the forum. Hmm. And so the only guys that are talking about how great something is are the pro staff or the sponsored athletes of those companies that support the forum. Gotcha. So I think that really, really upsets me in some ways because guys don't even realize that. Like, I'm totally fine with these relationships as long as people disclose it and are very transparent about it. Like, yeah, top bow hunters, like, hey, you know, I'm sponsored by Sitka. And like, you know that. You're like, oh, well, he's probably going to be pretty pro Sitka. Right. But in right. situations where companies are hiding the fact that there's people behind them that mm -hmm. are sponsoring stuff, that really gets me upset because it's like... <laughs> It's not just because you have the best product. It's because you just have the best marketing, right? Yeah, or you have most money. <laughs> the most money, yeah, literally. Yeah. Pushing, pushing stuff. And so let me back up a level here. I'm not, like I said, I'm not opposed to that. And like, who knows one day I'll be one of those guys. But I just hope that I'll always have that same level of trust where if I'm saying something, I'll be like, hey, guys, listen, I'm sponsored by X. And mm -hmm. I think it's great because of X, Y, and Z. I don't think it's great for person ABC. Right. right? And if I can... I think you can keep that model with the, the two different things. But anyway, enough yeah, of a rant for you, huh? <laughs> yeah, before we get uh, a bunch of flack from people who are sponsored, what are some of the pros of being sponsored? I, I guess it's a great way to break into an industry or become a personality. Well, it's yeah, it's a great way to break an industry, become a personality. Um, all the other companies scratch each other's backs, right? Like, you know, a backpack company has affiliations with gear companies, has affiliations with broadhead companies. Like you're going to get a ton of exposure and cross promotion mm -hmm. from all those different folks. Um, the model itself is pretty cool. It gives guys the ability to make an, a living loving what they do. Like yeah. that's awesome. The companies that do it, that sponsor stuff often give back to the environment and the animals, which I, I'm most excited about. If I see companies do that, you know, mm -hmm. sponsored athletes, generally, if they've got the money to do that, they're going to do that too. Um, sponsorships, your companies, the fundamental reason I'm in marketing is companies have a difficult translation layer, right? They don't have any way to explain what's good about something to somebody easily, mm -hmm. right? They've got their website, they've got videos, but like, they're never going to be as good at doing that as someone who does the thing. And so they get the benefits and like it done right. That person in a trustworthy way is telling you why something's great. And that's awesome. I think that's, that's really cool. So there's a lot of benefits to it. Um, especially if you're the person that's being sponsored, but, uh, yeah, just not the, just not the model we're doing right now. Yeah. And I mean, for the consumer going back to being independent, I think there's just a lot more trust, uh, a lot more space for nuance and yeah, you're just going to get a, a better answer. That's why I'm super excited about this. When you made the blog, I was like, actually, we got to do a podcast because I want to learn a lot from you. And then I think our conversations, other people can too. Yeah. Um, and I think the last bit I'll say on it is that people too, I think everyone's sick. I am. I'm so sick of like following some guy on Instagram or following a podcast. And it's like, every post is like, save 20% on this right. supplement with this coupon. And it's like, Hey, is no one talking about the fact that supplements 95% of the time are worthless and you don't need them. And B, like I, I logged on to Instagram <laughs> to see photos of guys hunting, not to hear you pimping someone else's stuff. So yeah, uh, that's part of the benefit of this too, is like I get to just make content and stuff the way I want to, like totally right. unencumbered and unrestricted by that. So that's really cool. 
Yeah, that's true. So you have a lot of freedom, creative freedom, and then you get to do what you love and do research in an unbiased way. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting close to the hour here. I want to transition over to a few rapid fire questions um, that I sent over. So these will put you on the spot a little bit. But um, first one is what is the scariest experience you've ever had out in the backcountry? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> backcountry. Let's let's narrow it down just to mountains and backcountry. Okay. Um, there's probably two or three. We've been rushed by a wolf. We've had a forest fire. I've been uh, frozen in at like five feet of viz. Those are probably the top three. I'd say of those three, uh, the biggest wolf blown in tent with a snowstorm at you know ten thousand feet. I'd say the biggest one would have been the forest fire. Yeah. What the heck happened? We were back up in a basin and the kind of quasi trailhead thing, these guys from Pennsylvania were camping there and just don't think they're familiar with Idaho in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and oops, that's, you know, I had Idaho and Colorado each year. So now you know where the forest fire happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lit a fire in the parking lot and caught them the hill on fire. And so I was up 2000 feet and four miles in at the top of that basin and the the base all around the road only road in started to burn mm-hmm. uh and so it was one of the scariest experiences of my life i looked down at that and i'm like i got nowhere to go crazy um, and so we i literally told my wife the second i saw that thing i was like oh because the wind very fortunately was blowing it burned over the road and it was burning up the other side mm-hmm. but if the wind switched it would have come up the valley and completely cut us off and I don't know what we would have done, got in a pond, Damn. but, uh, we threw everything in the pack, ran down as fast as humanly possible, almost got hit by a water bucket from a Chinook coming in, Wait, uh, putting it out. Yeah. He's dropping water buckets in the stream and the ponds were running through to get, get back home and, uh, jumped in the truck and like, didn't even like just threw stuff in the back and I like fired it up and like floored it. Like, yeah. I think I've used the Bodoo analogy a few times, but man, I was hauling ass and uh, ripped through part of the fire, like through the embers of it burning and got on the other side of it. Jeez. That was like one of the worst feelings on earth. Cause you see that thing and you're like, there's nothing I can do. And it's going to take me three hours to get back to my car. Uh, so there's a whole period where I'm like, not only is I'm going to lose everything I own for elk hunting and hunting in general, but, there's a good chance. I'm with my wife. Like I'm, I'm a little less concerned if it's just me, like, yeah, I'll figure it out. And if I die, that's a bummer. Um, and I've got people that I care about, but when I look over and she's standing there, it's like, Oh shit. That's crazy. That is nuts. Did you guys continue to hunt after that? Or was that like a harrowing experience where you needed to? to Yeah, they got it. It was really rough. Uh, they got it. Uh, they got it under control that night, believe it or not. They brought in two planes and like four helicopters because they they know they need to get it quick, right? Yeah. That time of yeah. year, it's bone dry. It was early season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they got it under control. So we went right back in there. And then really? two nights later, we got, that was the experience where we got knocked over by a, a uh, snowstorm. So we'll save that for another time. But it's just like insult <laughs> to injury. <laughs> That's crazy. You get the fire and then you get the ice. Fire and ice. Yeah. It's like only, only here could that happen. That's nuts. Uh, second one question is, uh, has anyone given you a really hard time for being a hunter and how did you deal with that? Oh, heck yeah. Yeah. No. And I think I've learned not to really talk about it at work because I had a lot of, uh, preconceived notions Mm -hmm. at the last place I worked where people were like, Oh, you got anger management issues. You've got probably psychological problems. Like that's just what they assume here in San Francisco when you tell them that. So, you know, in a 
there's the irony here is right. It's supposed to be the most accepting place, but there's certain things that aren't okay. Right. Uh, but I don't, I don't see any problem with that. I think part of the reason I'm here is to be an advocate and a voice for hunting mm-hmm. uh, for people. I think if you're just preaching in the choir, it's not going to go well, but for me to slowly show people why it's great and why it matters, like that's the best thing I can do for the sport of hunting. So that's why I've been super excited about it. But yeah, I always approach it the same way, which is start off talking about food mm-hmm. and backing. You know, fortunately, I studied environmental science at Berkeley, right? Like I, I, <laughs> I took classes in that. So I've, I've been to the mo- one of the most liberal institutions in the world and talking about environmental food management. And I can talk the talk, right? Remember, my professor was like, if everyone in the US converted to veganism, there wouldn't be enough arable land for us to survive. Wow. And so I think you can start with that premise and talk a little bit about you know, why game is so much different than meat you'd get commercially, right? You're not using agricultural products to raise meat. Because everyone's like, oh, well, meat's bad because it's inefficient. It's like, no, well, these animals are living in areas and eating things we don't use, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's very different. So I start from there. I walk them through the whole process. Maybe we can do the whole spiel later. But I think when you start from that and you talk about the reason that you hunt is because you love animals. It's not because you hate them. It's because you, you love them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that kind of blows people's minds in a little way. So yeah, I think if I can have those two conversations, if I can get someone to talk to me and have those two conversations, it goes well. Um, it's the people that are so militant about it. They won't even talk about it that are yeah tough. And I think the best conversations I've actually had are with vegans, believe it or not. I was going to say the same thing. I really yeah. enjoy talking to vegans about hunting. And then yeah. I feel at the end of the conversation, they're, they they respect hunters more than like the average guy eating in and out and not thinking about where their food comes from. Totally. I mean, I've had people eating burgers with me. I've been eating a dinner with a burger and I had a buddy be like, I cannot believe you kill an animal. What is wrong <laughs> with you? You're a psychopath. Literally verbatim right. staring at me while eating a hamburger. And I don't, um, I don't want to just write him off or say like, get angry. Like that's, uh, it's very hard to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> totally. you're starting from a spot where there's clearly a little bit of a disengagement. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I, I love that conversation stuff. I think anything you believe or you you have, if someone's not challenging you or pushing on it, or you're not examining it yourself, mm-hmm. uh, it's not a good thing. So it's, it's awesome. Very true. Yeah. Uh, what is some advice you would give yourself if you can go back to your first year as a hunter? <laughs> <laughs> don't take two packs <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh man oh so much advice um i think i'm like most guys and that i didn't you know like the stuff i do here comes off a little type a and a little crazy because it is mm-hmm. but i was definitely not that way the first year i think the advice i would have given myself uh and i kind of backed into it fortunately was like don't worry like don't worry about killing something mm. really don't make that what hunting's about because you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be happy. You know, 360, if, even if you kill something, 364 days a year, you're not killing something. So by your own definition, you're failing. And so like go out and enjoy it. And it's about learning, right? And the more you learn, the more successful you're going to be and in a roundabout way, you're going to kill more stuff. So that would be the advice I'd say. Yeah, that's really great advice for me, especially going into my first season hunting because I really, really want to get an elk. But uh, just remembering to set my expectations right and mm-hmm. to define success as not killing an elk necessarily, but just being out there is successful. Yeah. And I'll kill your rapid fire flow here for a second. But I think that's part of the anxiety with me with doing this stuff is I never want to do the things I love for someone else. 
right? Because that's going to ruin it. And so that's that applies to killing an elk, right? I've kind of chosen to make one of my claims to fame that I've gotten three out of the first four years. And like, it'd be pretty easy for me to go, man, I got to get one this year so I can say four out of five or whatever it is. So right. I'm going to have to, something I'm really conscious of, and I'm going to have to cut that off at some point just to be sure. But I also want to be explicit and public with you that your success means absolutely nothing to the podcast or this stuff. You know what I mean? I think Mm -hmm. either way, that's one of the coolest things about this. You are going to come back. If you come back and you didn't learn anything, yeah, that's failure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But if you come back and you're like, dude, I got so close and I learned all this stuff and let's revisit all the things we talked about and we'll go over it again. And then next year I'm like ready to rumble. Mm -hmm. That's a huge win. Maybe even more of a win than, hey, I walked out the first day and shot one. So yeah, that's, yeah, I think it's, that's the mindset, right? Yeah. And, and especially because that's most likely what's going to happen. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's numbers, right? It's a numbers game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to, to really get dedicated to the process and not so attached to the results, um, it's, it's something I've been trying to work on for a long time, especially, you know, working in sales and whatnot for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time you start something new, you kind of get attached to the results a little bit. Oh yeah. I've been, been there with this thing too. Yeah. So let's see. Next question would be best purchase of under a hundred dollars that has to do with hunting. That's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, uh, I would, if it's elk, let's just talk elk hunting. Okay. Like just elk hunting. It's a, it's a wind checker and I'll be real specific. It's not a wind checker. That's big. And you throw in your pocket or your pack. It's a wind checker. You buy four of them and you find the one that fits exactly in the side pocket of your bino harness or somewhere where it's unbelievably easy to get to. Because mm-hmm. the more you check that thing, that is the one thing you do consistently that I could say will give you the highest odds of killing an elk. Wow, good answer. Um, last two questions here. What does the first hour of every morning on the hunt look like for you? Uh, for me, I like to sleep in. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> That's why I backpack. I sleep in, and by sleeping in, I mean I wake up about 20 minutes before dark. Most guys are waking up an hour or two before mm-hmm. dark and hiking around and spreading their scent and getting tired. Um, I like to just roll out of the tent and be within a few hundred yards of an elk. So for me, it's always the same. I let all my stuff the night before. I just get up, put it on and roll out of the tent. And I'm usually somewhere, one of two things. I mean, there's somewhere where I'm a high confidence that by high confidence, I mean, probably 10 to 30% chance that an elk could come walking through there. Mm-hmm. Or I'm somewhere where I can see elk or hear them really easily. One of those two spots. And, uh, I'm just, I'm watching and waiting. Right. And so if I'm still hunting, I'm I'm sitting there and if I'm glassing, I'm looking for something. And when I see it, then it's time to make a move on it. But the, the elk in the morning, I think it's one of the toughest times to hunt them because they're moving, right. They're moving from low to high usually. And so if you get to the side of them or behind them, you're screwed because you just can't Mm -hmm. catch up with them. You can't get them to come back with calls. So I'm always trying to get to where they want to be. And I think starting a morning where you're watching and then strategizing and then making a move versus just like following elk, you'll be way more successful. So got it. Okay. And then long answer. <laughs> do, you, do you eat uh, before going out? Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't want to take the time and carry the weight for freeze dried meals or pay the yeah. money uh, for that. So I'll, I almost always just eat a bar for breakfast. Uh, I sleep with it in my pocket. So it's all warmed up. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I mean, trust me, trying to eat a cold <laughs> bar in the morning. Ooh, it's like chewing on a brick. Yeah. But I wake up and I just eat something there. And then I eat my two biggest meals of the day are like brunch and early dinner. <laughs> brunch and early dinner. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And then last question is what's the last hour of your day look like when you're hunting? 
Oh, that's, I'm super excited by the last hour. I'm always nervous a bit too, because if you shoot an elk that hour, that means it's going to be hard to find. And you're also going to be butchering it at night in the area I'm in, had a lot of wolves one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not fun, but and got rushed by a wolf right there one year, but that's another story, right? Uh, for me, it's always, I'm, I'm not really running and gunning as much with elk at night. Cause I don't, you know, I know I'm gonna have to come back in the dark. So I'm usually, usually I've set up my tent already near elk and I'm just trying to make a move on them as the wind switches. Okay. So there'll be days where I've been sitting there. I'd say half the time I've been sitting there for a few hours, watching a bunch of them waiting for that wind switch and then boom, it goes. And now it's time to go drop on them or I'm again, hanging out somewhere where I think they're going to come or where they're at and just stand there till the last, last light. Cause that last five minutes before it's pitch black is when you're going to see a big one. Nice. Cool. And then last thing is, uh, any, anything else I forgot or any ask you would have of the listeners or where they could find you or, or anything like yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest, biggest one is like, I've always, part of the reason I did this, I don't, I don't want to just like get up and preach to guys and talk about different stuff. But the, probably the biggest reason I'm doing this is like interact with people mm-hmm. and like get excited about talking to them and what they're liking and what they like, what am I doing? Right. What am I not? So like feedback. I love feedback. If guys are like, dude, your articles are way too deep or, or they're not long enough or why don't you review that stuff and not this or, you know, these podcasts talk about that. Like, I love that. So like leaving feedback on the podcast here, looking me up on Instagram and messaging me, going to the website and emailing me, subscribe to the newsletter and respond to that, whatever it is. Like I love hearing from people. So um, in the same way that I'm kind of mentoring you, I just love chatting with other guys and meeting especially love meeting guys that know a heck of a lot more about stuff than i do in certain areas everyone's got something they're great at mm-hmm. and, uh, for them to tell me what's up i love to hear that too cool yeah so what are the different ways they can say hi to you on the internet and uh w- what's like the best way yeah so we've got a bunch of stuff going right now but really baxterbowman.com you know, there's a bunch of stuff there there's links to the podcasts the gear reviews the hunt elk in 2020 course series whatever you want to call it so there's a contact form there uh, I post pretty much daily to Instagram. So mm-hmm. there's, they can go there and check that out. I've got YouTube videos up of all the stuff. I tend to mirror the articles with YouTube videos. So they can go comment on those um, or they can just comment on the podcast. I probably don't monitor that as closely because it's harder to do, but any or all of those things are great and guys can just consume content in the way they like. Awesome. So yeah, it's the website's baxterbowman.com. Mm-hmm. Obviously this is the podcast you're listening to and an Instagram, same thing, Baxter Bowman. Yep. Everything with that name. (laughs) Awesome. Signing out. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon where you'll be interviewing me one of these days. Well, looking forward to it. (laughs) And baby's coming soon. So we'll see when we can make it happen. Yeah. Soon enough. Sounds good. All right. Thanks guys for listening and we'll catch you next time.